0: Veronica Miller, born and raised in Texas, grew up using her curiosity to guide her learning and develop her passion of how she thinks about the world through a philosophical lens. Along with her four sisters, she was homeschooled after third grade. Thinking about how the world works led her to study philosophy and obtain a master's degree from Fordham University in New York City. Her distinguished research landed itself a spot as an Angus Care Lawson Essay Prize winner presentation at the George Santayana Society, in conjugation with the APA Eastern Division. This essay, Levels of Animal Life, George Santayana, and a Purely Naturalistic Model of Supervenience, will also be published in the Fall 2018 issue of Overheard in Seville, the Bulletin of the George Santayana Society. Her paper explores how the mind, body, and psyche operate together in unison, further, she explores personal identity and how it is cultivated in today's talk. We're kicking off this year with a woman who is a power woman on every front. She is an educator, a thinker, and someone who asks the world questions in search of being part of a more authentic tomorrow.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Can you just introduce who you are, what you're doing, and yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Uh, hi, my name is Veronica Mueller. Um, so, I am currently a first grade teacher in the South Bronx, um, which is a very, very new thing for me because for the last couple years I've been teaching undergrad philosophy courses um, because I've been getting my master's in philosophy. Um, so, moving from teaching 20-year-olds to 6-year-olds has been a whole story in itself, but um, that whole process I've kind of realized that like teaching is my passion and um, now after having experience in higher education I wanted to kind of go see what our elementary education was going on uh, or what was going on in elementary education here in the United States and I think I've I don't know it's a very good contrast between the two um, um, and so I kind of really realized is that like when you're in elementary education, we kind of teach to fit a certain mold, right? Like the questions are set a certain way. Like, and there is a beauty to standardized tests because there is something to be said for having that. um, But also like there's a very big difference between that and then what, especially in philosophy, is required because you're required to have a logical argument that's like set down. You have to have theses. You have to have standards. You have to have like a progression through and you have Mm -hmm. to be able to argue it, which is something that's not taught by just being able to answer questions like questioning. So
1: what was like your main problem that you saw when you were teaching undergrad? Like, what was the big... What were they not able to get from one place to the other?
2: Right. So um, so let me just back up a little bit to answer that question. I need to tell you how you're supposed to write a philosophy okay. paper. Um, so when you write a philosophy paper, you usually start with some sort of claim. Okay. So you start with a claim that says um, either... This is how the debate is going now, and this is how I want to change it. Or, okay. you, and so that's like an argumentative type paper. Or right. you can just write a historical paper that says these are the two sides of an argument, or this is a tradition of philosophy, and I'm going to dive deeper. Okay, um, and so the type of philosophy in an intro course, what the ch- what the children, what the students receive is they receive like a broad history of philosophy. Okay, and so the papers that they write gradually um, get more. Um, difficult as the semester goes on. So their first couple of papers, at least the way that this course was set up. So they wrote four papers. So the first two were kind of historical papers. So it was basically okay. just regurgitation. Like Announcing. here's what Plato yeah. said, here's what Aristotle said. Like, this is interesting to me because, but like not a lot of because statements. We really just wanted to know what they were getting from the class. Um, and then the way the professor set it up for the last cup, two papers was it had to be a synthesis, synthesization of two thinkers or two lines of thought so it was having right. to say well i see that you know plato talks about value in a sort of global sense but then aristotle takes value and he turns it on his head and on his head and makes it very individual right. and so being able to take those two lines of questioning and being able to compare them and contrast them and say this is what's different and this is why i think one side is correct or not okay. and so that part like that analysis yeah. to take a stand to actually make a claim the students were not able to do that in a clear and concise manner For many different reasons. One is I think that their basic, like basic grammar was missing a lot. Um, So that was a big stretch with a lot of them. And then also they didn't really, um, I don't really want to be mean. How do I say this? Uh, they, they. Just say it forward, no? yeah, forward. Yeah, okay. They but didn't really. Mind. They didn't want to do the work. They didn't want to do the heavy lifting. They wanted it to be handed to them. So I had a lot of students that would just copy like intense philosophical thoughts from the internet and then just put it in their paper as if I didn't know. I gave you this resource, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. I know that it's there, so I'm going to Google it and I'm going to look because I've read those articles, but they would just copy-paste and be like, this makes sense. Like Someone else is doing the heavy lifting for me, so obviously I'm just going to agree with it. And so they kind of just were wanting to be spoon-fed about things, and they weren't actually wanting to engage their brains and do that sort of work. Um, So then in my lectures, I tried to break it down. I I didn't follow any of the lines of questioning I was supposed to because – it, I I just didn't think it was kind of stale, you know. Like yeah. the professor, he uh, so I was like a TA, so I right. would lecture yeah. once a week, and he would lecture yep. uh, once a week. And so my section, I he w- was always saying, well, you should just take the PowerPoint and like you should just go off the PowerPoint that I have on the other side of the week too. And then I and I we sat down like because he would observe me, and I told him like I don't really want to do that. Like I make my own. Like you can read my lectures before I I tell them yeah. to the children yeah. or to the students as well because I'm saying the exact same information. I just have different questions like. Um, So his was more like for the test Because they needed to be able to write these certain essay questions And it makes sense But like I took my discussion session As to be more of like why do you care So we read Plato's Symposium And there's a lot of things in there About like relationships, about love And about all these things that I think young people have a lot of intuitions about And so that's what the professor Like he told me this is why I chose it Because I think they have a lot of intuitions about this More so than like truth or justice And I think that worked really well because like I could be like, why do you care? Like, you're in a relationship with somebody. They tell you XYZ thing. Now you have to decide, do I want to take this relationship forward or not? You have to evaluate the situation and move on or not. And I was like, you're making decisions every day based on your value pattern. And that's exactly what you need to be thinking about. And so, like, you can see the light bulb go off. Absolutely. If you ignite
1: someone's passion in something and you're able to tie it to anybody's individual life, they're going to be engaged in content way more. I mean, anytime, obviously, even working with five and six-year-olds, we notice every single day that you, like, tie it to something at home. You tie it to an outside activity. They get it. Same as college kids. If you tie it to how much they love something, you're absolutely gonna like. You learn more because it relates. I remember yeah. in high school being able to be like, "Oh my god, AP History all of a sudden makes so much more sense because it's the same thing that I'm learning in AP Lit." And like, you can go. cross things over. Absolutely, and it's it's absolutely huge.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I talked about Beyonce so much. It was great. <laughs> Oh, gosh, there's just one meme. It's so funny. It's probably not actually funny, but I think it's funny. Yeah. So it was, like, it was the evolution of questioning. So it started out with Aristotle, and it was, like, what do you know? And then okay. it was, like, uh, Kierkegaard was, like, how do you know? And then there was another one, uh, like, uh, what's his name? Heidegger was, like, why, why do we want to know? And then um, someone else was, like, it, it was, like, it was one of the rappers. I don't know okay. any of the I modern know. music, but it was somebody that all the kids knew. And I was, like, this would be funny. And then it just turned out to be, like, what? what what in the you know because like you know how they like <laughs> beatbox and everything and so then i was like isn't this so funny like have fun go study for finals and i thought it was hilarious um because you just ask what nowadays yeah. you know and yeah. uh, and then i sent them off and i sure so not <laughs>
1: that's great yeah. oh my okay so you're kind of at a very exciting place in your life right yeah. now okay you have a huge talk coming up yeah. because of your paper i do can you tell our audience a little bit about what your paper is um, and what you
2: yeah, okay, great, this will be exciting, so my paper is in the pragmatism section of philosophy, so pragmatism is a, is a school, but it 's also like an approach um, so pragmatic in itself is like a matter of fact way to approach things. Um, So pragmatism is a unique part of philosophy because it actually tries to deal with the actual felt lived experience of humans, of animals, of things in this world. Um, Because there's a lot of philosophy that's very theoretical. There's a lot of philosophy that's not applied. And there is a time and space for that. And it's very useful for thought experiments. Um, But at the end of the day, There was um, a lot of people who were left with a lot of questions. So they were like, hmm, what can we do? Well, we can take this very theoretical philosophy from the Germans and we can actually try and apply it to something. Um, So that was a movement back in the early 1900s. So you've got John Dewey, William William James, Charles Peirce, and then George Santayana is this philosopher that I study. Um, And so he is a Spanish-American philosopher that lived in Boston around the turn of the century. So he went to Harvard. Um, Interesting thing about him is that he actually wasn't an academic for all of his life. He uh, retired at age 40 because he was left a little bit of money from an inheritance. And then he went and he lived in a monastery in Italy for the rest of his life. Wow. Um, so he basically got very disillusioned with the way that philosophers had their role in society because he had a very different way of approaching the world than the rest of the pragmatism school. And so what I find to be unique about him is that he's a very um, prolific philosopher, but he's not well known at all. Um, okay. So my mentor at Fordham University, um, she uh, went to school in Toronto. And so her mentor was the one who got her interested in Santiana, So it's kind of like this lineage down the line. And there's not very many of us that study. him, Um, which is why I got the opportunity to write this paper, um, is because there's not very many. So I knew Diana and she knew, uh, Glenn. And so then I was like, yeah, it all works down. Yeah. My paper is called Levels of Animal Life, a Purely Naturalistic Model of Supervenience. Perfect. Um, So we can break that down into two sections. I'll start with the second section because supervenience is the philosophical term. So supervenience is a metaphysical term to describe the relationship between the mind and the body. Um, So there's generally two ideas about that Is either the mind Depends on the body For existence Or the body Depends on the mind So it's either An arrow pointing down Or an arrow pointing up mm-hmm. um, And so there's a really Complicated logical sequence That explains the way That this works And so typically We use strong supervenience That says That it's Everything is physical So it's a Pervasive physicalism So you've mm-hmm. got Newtonian physics You have the advent Of like atomic um, Atoms and you know Einstein right. And black hole theory All of that Depends on the world Being actual Tangible substances okay. um, And so the way that everything fits together is like a machine. So the gears fit, it's mechanistic, and then everything turns because it's intimately connected. And as humans learn more about the world, there is a possibility for us to know exactly how the world works because it is so tightly connected. It works. Okay. But the problem with that is, is the closer you get to knowing how everything works, the farther away humans are. So... What I did in my paper is, is you can take George Santayana's levels of animal life because he takes the mind and he splits it into two parts. So instead of having mind, body, he's got um, spirit at the top, psyche in the middle and body on the bottom. Okay. So he splits the top level into two. And so what he wants to say is you can take physicalism, you can take that atom structure of the world, but you don't have to have it determine the way that your mind works So your identity is not going to be predetermined. Who you are, what you do, your decisions, your value framework, all of that is still under your control, Mm -hmm. which I'm a proponent of free will, so I really do like the way that this opens up the structure. Right. So instead of being just a one-way arrow, it makes it a biconditional. So it makes it a two way arrow going back and forth. Um, and so, as the atoms of your physical body move around the world and they form to make who you are, how tall you are, your hair color, your eye color, things like that, um, it's going to give rise to this psyche. So, the psyche, the best way to think about that is just plain sentience. <laughs> so, everything that is an animal has sentience. Okay. Um, and so, like, Animals have it. It is the thing that tells them when to hibernate, when to look for food. You know, some humans also have this because we are Homo sapiens. We are animals. It's an
1: innate thing. Exactly. Mm
2: -hmm. And so it's an it is. That's an excellent word to describe it. It's an innate ability to live and to know. Or not to know, but to live and to depend that the next moment is going to be there. Right. So there's something very, very scary about living your life and not knowing that the the next moment's gonna be there. But like if you were to go back into the recesses of your mind, you would realize that actually we have no guarantee that the moment in the future is going to be anything like the moment in the past.
1: Wow. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah.
2: So that is called skepticism. Take that to its <laughs> like logical end and you get a solipsism of the present moment, which is someone who's just very, very like tunnel-visioned. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of where supervenience has gotten in the modern like terms is because okay. it's just been very like, this is the only way that it can go, this is where it's going. Um, and so what... Shantayana does what's so powerful about his move about breaking the mind into two places is that he gives um, he gives a nod to the idea that there's a difference between sentience and sapience okay so sentience is what all animals have but sapience is unique to humans right Um, so that is what the spirit is the spirit is a um, immaterial realm of being um, but it also has a foothold in the material world because it is who you are. I like to think of it as yeah. like the voice in your head. Like whatever it is, your spirit, your your tsuke, right? That's what the Greeks would call it. Whatever it is that you have that animates you, that's what your spirit is. Okay. Um, because you're Joe and I'm Veronica. And so yeah. we don't have the same spirit, but we're both sentient in the same way. Does that right, make sense? Right, yeah. Like
1: it transcends from you into... Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: And so what he so the way he talks about that is not a dependence relation. So it's not like... I have a body, therefore I have a, a psyche, therefore I have a spirit. It's it's a growth relation. So, like, as, yes. this, as the body moves, the psyche is born, right? So you can think of that as your birth, right? And then right. as your psyche moves around, as you, like, cognitively mature, you get a spirit. And right. then when you reach that level, you've reached... Um, a level of human life where animal, a level of animal life where you are capable of analytical thinking, you're capable of like he has all these examples so like he, he delves into religion, he delves, because he was not a religious person at all, Yeah. but I think that his philosophy can be religious or it could be just plain spiritual, you yeah. know which I think is very freeing in a sense that like you don't have to ascribe to a certain tradition in order to be able to buy into this philosophical theory um, which I think in the modern day is um, pivotal because there needs to be, like, broader arguments that, like, bring more people in. Because, like, we're not trying to exclude. We're just trying to, like, come to this understanding of who we are as humans and how we got here. Yeah. And so I think, like, talking about it in a growth relation like Santayana does, that's the point of my paper, is, is that we can move away from the tunnel vision, like, dependent... It's called reductionist view. So it's reductive physicalism. Yeah. So we can move away from this, like, pervasive reductive physicalism and, like, kind of open the way for the idea that, like, you're not completely determined by... Your physical elements, but that there is this extra life in your brain or in your mind that you can actually, like, give a life to. You know, it's it's unique to you, and it can kind of, you know, grow as you grow.
1: Right, and correct me if I'm wrong. So, basically, it's, like, based on your experiences, you're able to create a spirit yes right if i'm putting it in like dumbed down yeah no that's fine i I just want to do my best here yes yeah okay yeah that's awesome yeah so like your
2: your psyche and your spirit is is an amalgamation of everything that your physical elements have been through okay and so it's gonna be different for everyone and so like um technically i really like what i study is like the philosophy of personal identity so that's why metaphysics is such a strong part of this paper is because um so metaphysics is It's a made-up word, actually. So it means after physics Mm -hmm. because in Aristotle's books, it was physics, and then there was a book that didn't have a name. So they were like, "Mm, we're going to call it (laughs) metaphysics because it's after physics. Like, (laughs) that's all that it means, really. It it sounds very philosophical and, and, you know, very abstract, but it it literally is just like a sequential letter. Um, But anyway, so, like, you get all these metaphysical questions about being, the nature of being, what does it mean to be a human, what does it mean to actually, like, be and live. Um, And so, like, I think those are very tied to identity questions because who you are is something that, like, I think all humans are striving to understand
1: absolutely okay now i feel like i can bounce back into our what we were having okay, good former yes. conversation yes but yeah so this obviously ties into fake instagram or finsta as you say how do you think that like yeah can you tell me just a little bit about finsta and what this means and then obviously personal
0: identity. finsta is a noun and is a fake or second instagram account primarily used to hide scandalous and overtly sexual behavior cultivate an alter ego and function with anonymity to troll peers
2: entity based on that right okay good so my understanding of finsta is is that it's a second instagram that is not shared with all of your followers okay so you have your main instagram account okay where you cultivate your um your persona to be whatever it is that you want you know you're either very very traveled you're very well learned you can be either All of your pictures are black and white, only of trees. However it is that you want people to know you, whatever box you want to fill, that's that's what you put on your real Instagram. Um, But the nod that I find that society is giving now to who I truly am is through the Finsta. So it's the fake Instagram where you put the pictures that show your life as it really is. Okay. So it's a flip. So who I truly am shows up on my fake Instagram, and who I want the world to see me as shows up on my real Instagram. Are you still
1: choosing the pictures that you put on the fake Instagram? And you're just... Is it like a more intimate, like, amount of people that would actually see you? Because it's based on people that actually know what's happening in your day-to-day life. Yeah, that's absolutely correct.
2: Yeah, so I'll take my sister, for example, because... Um, she was the one who told me about this. So she is um, 18, almost 19 years old. She just graduated high school. Um, and so she has a, a real Instagram where she puts all of her gorgeous pictures, you know, like all of her photo shoots with her dog. And, you know, she went walking through the woods with a cup of coffee, you know, all of those things on her real Instagram. She has several hundred followers and, you know, she's very, very good at being that persona. But then on her fake Instagram, her Finsta, she puts all of the pictures of her like double chins or her makeup mess ups or like her pictures of her eyebrows because she like doesn't feel good that day. So she has like funny captions or, you know, songs that she's singing, things like that. And so the people that she lets follow her on that are like her immediate family and then a select few of her friends that she talks to on a daily basis. Um, So she's very selective about who she lets see that side of her because she wants it to be or, I, you know, like, I think the theory behind Finsta is that you don't let the whole world see who you are because right. um, it's not always the most attractive thing, yeah. right? Which, so, as a philosopher of identity, that's very interesting to me because who I truly am seems to be, like, bottom level, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, it's, this, is, this is a theory I have. So, it's either an inductive way of inductive way of forming your identity which is like from the bottom up Mm -hmm. or it's a deductive way so you move from the top down um and so i find that most social media platforms are deductive because you say this is the box i want to fill i want people to think that i am insert in the blank whatever you want it to be right right so you take that box you're like yes this is what i want to be i want to be um i want to look like the kardashians or something like that right so then You're going to cultivate your Instagram or your Facebook, your Twitter, Snapchat, whatever it is. You're going to move down so that way people think, oh, well, she looks like a Kardashian. So, therefore, she must wear these shoes and she must have her hair this way. She must do this, that, and the other and do these certain things that she wants to cultivate this persona as. And so does that change the bottom level who you actually are? No, it does not. It just hides it. It shoves it further away and it doesn't let it see the light of day. Do you think
1: that is like... It do, in some ways, do you think it impacts who you are? Though. Absolutely. Like yes. even though it doesn't change who you originally were, right. like I think it does actually impact it. Correct. Like, right. No matter what you're feeding it, while you're feeding it to the world, I think you're absolutely feeding it to yourself every day, and like that in so many ways. Like I think it ha- plays a huge issue with depression in the modern era, uh, anxiety, the reason people can't do things the way. That, used to be able to do
2: absolutely uh, true yeah. no you can't yeah. see me but I'm, yeah. I'm making a grief <laughs> sign. yes, yes. <laughs> no, I absolutely 100% agree with that because I do believe that, like, there are parts of us, like, that really want to be, you know, fit and athletic, right? You know, right. and I'm guilty of it, too. Like, I only put pictures on Snapchat when I know that I'm, like, oh, look at my shoes. I'm running today. Like, I ran for 10 minutes and then I fell over. But, like, no one knows that part about my life. They just yeah. think I'm really fit, you know? Um, because, like, I do want to be that, you know? So part of me is being authentic. But no. the whole the whole thing is, is a bit inauthentic in the sense is like I'm not I'm not I don't want to say this this is a very absolutist type of sense here but like the whole you is not not often showing itself no you know what I mean
1: I don't think it ever is and who knows if it was 10, 20 years ago because no one was able to show it I think you still maybe showcase Mm -hmm. something else when people were coming over for Christmas parties like you only know like you only know the surface of anything but I think social media has exasperated what is happening and unfortunately has led to a lot of issues yeah
2: it's just issues it's, yeah no it's this type of like virtual reality where it only matters what I am online it doesn't actually really matter who I am in real life because those people don't know me quote they don't know who I am in an authentic way because you put yourself out online in a certain way and then you meet someone in real life and you're like, oh well you know you don't actually know who I am like why would you ever want to be my friend? why would you ever want to go on a date like you, if you knew who I truly was, you wouldn't yeah. be happy with it because I think that like we only pick the best parts of ourselves to put online, right? Absolutely. Which that's a that's a blessing about social media. Is it like, yeah, I can put a good face out there. So like if I am trying to show people my good side, like yeah, go to my Facebook profile. I don't have any bad pictures on there because, you know, I I change it once a year when I take a good picture. Um and so I've I don't know, I I go back and forth about how I feel about social media. Like in a way it's very necessary and even more nowadays than it was like five years ago when I came up with this idea. Um, but in a way, it's also still very inauthentic, right? And so, like, the opposite of the deductive way, like, here's the box, let mm-hmm. me fill the lines, is the, yeah, is the inductive way, which is an authentic way to, like, identify who you are, which is where you start at the bottom. And you say, well, this is who I am. And so you have all of these identity markers, right? So you have race, gender, sexuality, uh, ethnicity, ability, age. All of these things can tie into who you are, right? And so, like, if you take those, there's nine of them. I should, I should be able to list them, but I think I got most yeah. of them. So there's nine that I think that I've decided um, that are fairly basic, that are fairly given to you by nature that you can't often change, right. right? And so these are things that if you can identify those, you start at the bottom, you say, well, this is who I authentically am, so therefore I can fill all of these boxes, right? And I think that people would be happily surprised to see the kind of boxes that they could fill. Like I really do think that a lot of us would be who we want to be, if we give ourselves the chance right so it's like maslow's hierarchy right like we all want to reach the point and be self actualized no. but i do think that everything moves so fast nowadays we try and find the fast tracks
1: you know? right so what do you think people would spend time doing instead of things on social media to fill those boxes
2: wait i i Does wait. That make, like, no no say okay it
1: so like to authentically build yourself yeah. what do you think the focus would be on Ah,
2: so like how, what's the exactly. process? Exactly. What's the process? what
1: would the process look like? Okay, um,
2: well you're asking a philosopher, so I'm, my answer is yeah. gonna be to think. Yes, <laughs> good, yeah. But, um, no, I think it takes like a very honest, like, um, sit down session with yourself. Okay. You know, like through meditation, or like a walk in the woods, like, that's what I do. I will go sit on a tree, you know, and like meditate for an hour, and like really try and figure out what is most valuable to me, yeah. and so that also ties into like the, like, um, so ethics and morality, right? That, those are very loaded terms nowadays because everyone has a very different idea of what is moral. Yes? Um, so moral relativism is its own pitfall, and but Santayana definitely was open to that. So as a Santayana scholar, I might have to be open to that. I'm not sure yet. Um, but anyway, so you just have to figure out your value platforms, right? You have to figure out what it is that you want, what it is that you care about the most, and what you're willing to do to be able to make those goals happen, right? Um, so you want to have a job, you want to, you know, go on a trip, you need to be able to apply for those jobs, go on those interviews, and then also save money. You need to be able to say, oh, well, I'm going to make a sacrifice here. So down the line, I can like show this bigger goal for myself. Right. And so I think that it just takes a lot of self-discipline. And then also I like lists. So if you can list it out, like, You can know what it is. And I mean, sometimes it's going to change. Like if nothing is set in stone, like your goals now are not the same as they were six months ago, a year ago, and they're not going to be the same tomorrow or six months from now. So I think that's the beautiful thing about like self analysis is that like you kind of like your idea of yourself grows as you grow. Absolutely. And so I think that like it takes this sort of um, like flexibility so that way you don't you bend, but you don't break right? Which is a very pragmatic attitude, I think, because like, the way to think about the life is like, as humans, we're not a branch, right? We are a stream. And so as we live, we just kind of flow. And every once in a while, we perch on a rock. And we'll be there for a while. But then, you know, you flow again, and you'll find another rock. But then you keep flowing, you know, and you find another rock. And sometimes there's people on the rocks with you. Sometimes you're by yourself. you know, It just depends. But like, I think thinking about the world as a as a stream that helps me think about it a lot. That helps me.
1: It's funny. I actually wrote my uh, high school papers on being two different rivers and oh, being like, which cool. river am I? And it was like the Salzach River in Salzburg, Austria, and my like home mountain stream yoga, uh, river at home. Oh, that's it was, like, so cool. Yeah, but it was basically like the whole terminology of being like, oh, my, am I a river that's like through a city and big and like moving really fast, or mm-hmm. am I a city that's like simple and like needing like ground right yeah yeah oh that's fascinating i like that that's what it reminded me of but i absolutely agree with you yeah yeah i mean i think we are constantly moving constantly ever changing while like the core of us does say this the same
2: exactly you have those markers that are never going to change yeah but how those markers express themselves is obviously going to change as you mature and grow and like your values are going to change, like your values when you're single are not going to de- be the values you have when you have a partner in a life, like in children, like that's going to change so much, you know, or when you have a job, like a low level job or then maybe you make it CEO, right? Like your life is going to change. And, and so I, I like that very much about um, like the idea of like growth, right? So Santayana is unique in that in is because philosophy likes to be very precise um, and so being is like, oh, well, you just grow. Like, yeah. No. It's not a garden. Like, yeah. you know, and but, um, but I think that he does a very good job of that. And so I, I th- and I think it just strikes a chord in the human heart, you know? Because yeah. there's something very real about that idea. Is that like, so like earlier I was saying, like he has the idea that the, or sorry, the idea in supervenience is that it's like a purely mechanistic, mm-hmm. like the gears are squished together. But Santayana in general he his theory is is that the connection between mind and body is one of tentative purchase so it's right. not something that's completely tight and together it's one that just is yeah. you know and it, and it just kind of like turns and it goes and there's times when it's more specific times when it's less specific but at the end of the day we are animals right and yeah. so there is this thing called the leap of faith Right, And so it's he has this idea of not religious faith, not spiritual faith, but animal faith. So every moment of every day, animals, they have to leap into the unknown. Because you have to rely that the next moment is going to be there. Because the, you don't have any other data to extrapolate other no. than the fact that for the last 24 years, every moment has been there. Yeah. So why would I guess any different for the future? Um, and so I think that... Um, for the German side of my brain, that's very, very hard to get used to, but the Italian side of my brain is very happy with that because it would just be like, yes, let's go. It'll be great. Every moment is new. It's a new adventure. Like it's one of the reasons why I came to New York city is because it is a new adventure. Like you get on the bus, you never have the same bus ride twice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, know? it's just like, I think that there is something beautiful about the city and the way that it's set up is like, it's one of the most like concrete, heavy, smog infested rat infested places in the entire world but yeah. like there's also so much like i don't
1: know it's, it's there's just... beauty in every like small corner exactly no and i think like you go places in new york and you it's a whole new world and yeah. you see things and i'm like every single day i'm amazed by like these the experiences you can have the people you interact yes. with how many times people tell you new yorkers suck and they're actually like all very intimate people yeah like it really is. Yeah. Everything is different, and you learn something every day. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, I love that. And I love that um,
2: that we get the opportunity to see, like, you know, first grade, kindergarten. Like, these are sweet, young, sweet. young kids, you know? And, like, my, my worldview – or not worldview, but my world reference is not the same as theirs. Like, when I was six – I honestly didn't know how to tie my shoes or, like, anything but look at a blade of grass. Like, that's all I did. Yeah, or that's all I remember doing. I'm sure I did more. Um, but you know what I mean? And it's just, like, these kids are so fascinating to me to, like, have them open up and talk about these things. It's because I think that, like, they have a lot of ideas, and I just want to cultivate that, mm-hmm. you know? Because I think all too often... um I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but I think all too often there are systems in place that don't encourage that type of individual thinking. You know, all over the place. Systems, all of them. Um, And so,
1: like, yeah. Speaking of systems, though, because it is interesting, working in a charter school, it is very systematic. Like, how things are positive is everything is based on a schedule. Everything's like one, two, three. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's enough room for individualism, or do you think like you would rather work down the line in like a Montessori school where there is more free thought?
0: Mm, interesting, I hadn't thought about that. A charter school is a school that receives government funding, but operates independently of the established state school system in which it is located, and in some cases is privately owned. The Montessori method of education, on the other hand, was developed by Dr. Maria Montessori, and is a child-centered educational approach based on scientific observations of children from birth to adulthood.
1: Um, I mean, I know I struggle with it a lot coming yeah. from a background where it was like, I grew up in like the most liberal town in the entire world in pocket of Southwest yeah. Colorado. And everything was like, we had education that happened outside Mm -hmm. every six weeks where like you would spend two full weeks allotted to like just one subject some of it was like avalanche training some of it was cooking classes and then you'd have six weeks of like normal instruction but it was still like in a hippie town yeah and now here I am teaching at a school where it's like I know that these kids are going to be great test takers and a lot of times I believe in that I know that like I'm cultivating a deeper understanding of texts and like a love for Reading, But then also there's a lot of times where I feel like cut off because I'm like, you're not learning based on experience. You're learning right. solely on how to take a test. Right. And so there's a lot of that that I don't know if I agree with. And, mm. or, well, no, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, so maybe a little bit about my schooling background
2: to maybe frame this answer. Um, so I went to public school until third grade and then okay. I was homeschooled. Yeah. So I didn't have the same, same type of uh, like elementary school reference as a right, lot of other yeah. people um and so then I, I do think it's very very funny though because i am from south texas and i was homeschooled yeah. and now i am working at a church school in the south bronx yeah so it's a very funny path that life has brought me to um but i do know that my par- both my parents are engineers okay. and so we would wake up at seven o'clock every single morning we had to be downstairs by 7 to eat breakfast then we would be in the school room at eight o'clock So, like, we still had a structured day, but that was, like, where the structure ended. After that, my parents would give us a list. They would say, you have to do 45 minutes of grammar, you have to do an hour of math, you have to do 30 minutes of spelling, you have to practice your piano for however long it was at the time, you know, like, it got more as we got older. And then there was, like, we had to do Latin, we did... I don't know. We did all these different subjects, right? Yeah. Uh, we did logic. We did writing. So we did everything, but it was just time allotments. And so my mom would check it, and if we didn't get enough done in the time allotted, we would have to do another block of that. But we were in charge of the order that we did everything every single okay. day. And so it was hard because... Um, there are times when I'm, you're younger, right? So you're eight, nine years old when I was in third grade. Yeah. Like, you just really want to go outside and play. And so my mom and dad kind of just let us experiment with that type, with that idea of type management. I'm um, like, okay, yeah, well, Veronica, you went outside and played from eight o'clock until two. And now that all of your friends are out of school, you can't go play with them because now you need to go inside and do your math. Like, right. they did their work in the morning. You need to do your math right now. Um, and so there was a time where I would just wake up at midnight and do all of my school from like midnight to 2am and then go to sleep and then wake up and have all day long to do everything that didn't last very long. But what I think I learned back to your idea about structure and freedom and individualism is that at least for the way that my brain works, um, is that there needs to be some sort of structure in order for there to be freedom. Absolutely. Right? And so I think even th- speaking about your school, like, you did have a sort of a structure. Maybe right. it wasn't as tight as what, you know, um, some schools have. And so I think that the idea of structure is very good for young minds mm-hmm. because, like, they need to learn the value of time. They need to learn the value of learning and, you know, like, the seriousness of independent practice and things like that. Um, but then I think, like, it's, on us as educators to yeah. facilitate those types of discussions in a way that does leave time for individualism, right? And so I think that that's where like who you are as a teacher will mm-hmm. come through. And I do think that there is a place for that in the school that we work. You just have to be very diligent about finding those places, yes. right? Which is something that I've been working on um, because we got uh, we got our professional, you know, like rubrics back and everything. And they told me, uh, Miss Mueller, you have a lot of time that you don't do anything with in a very diplomatic way. Yeah. Of course, uh, you waste time. So I was like, oh, wow. I always thought that was one of my strong suits. Good to know. So um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately this past week. And I do realize that I could use my time in a more intentional manner. Um, And so, like, I don't think that my brain works the same way as the people who made the the way that this system works. Um, But I do think that I can understand why they made the system. And so if I can see why they valued it, then I can imprint my own values on the system, and then change it just a bit to make it my own, to make it authentic. Yeah. Right. And so, if there ever comes a point where I don't feel like my values could be imprinted upon the system, then I do believe that that is a time for a reevaluation. Right. Um. But does that make sense? No, it absolutely yeah. makes sense. I mean,
1: I think, especially where we're located in South Bronx, given the demographic, I think stability is the best thing, absolutely. and that's why, like, I'm like I at the beginning i was like this is way too much structure i couldn't deal with it i don't know if like mm. it, i mean it was a hard adjustment yeah. for me but then well i as mean students, first first-year
2: teachers exactly. like yeah. there are
1: so many things to deal with at the time yeah. yeah no yeah. absolutely no, but then like looking at it it's like now i actually love that the kids know exactly yes. what's going to happen at the certain time yes. of day and my favorite thing too has become like oh my guided reading now that i'm having level d readers i mm-hmm. can ask opinions yes i can go Oh my gosh! I agree yeah. with that. I had a kid read a parade thing the other day, and I was like, "What can we tie this to?" And he goes, "It was just a Fourth of July parade book." And he yeah. goes, um, "My dad says these colors only represent Donald Trump," and I was just like, "A of The statement, but it was awesome. Then it like you had I had four or five year olds having a minor political debate. Yeah. They're saying things like my dad hates him. My dad (laughs) loves him like these things. But I was like, Oh, but why? And they were actually able to like cultivate very like interesting things. And I think that's where we can take the place and like be like, that's, that's creation of self identity in itself. Like what is your actually, your real opinion of this? Right.
2: Which I think that's like a really, I I love that you did that. Like that's a hundred percent exactly what I'm talking about. Right. You took this moment and you're like, how can I use this to help them as people? Yeah. Right, which is, like, I think that along the way it gets lost in the focus on the standardized test because there is such a push for data, and it, and that's very critical. You know, like, we need to get through 11 years of instruction in 8 years. Yeah. You know, and it's like, that is a thing that needs to happen because that's just how, that's the way the world works. So, like, there's a part of me that's very idealistic about the way that education works, and then there's a part of me that has to be very realistic. And yeah. I have to say, okay, so I think it just takes a little bit of compromise. Um, like, as an adult, like, I think I needed to, like, reel myself back and say okay Veronica like what exactly are your goals I you know I had to go sit down and make a list like what are your goals what are your values what are you hoping to get how can you do this in the most efficient way possible and I mean I think that's a blessing about teaching the younger grades is that we don't really have to worry about standardized tests like I don't think they start till what third grade Yeah, really in
1: third grade. Exactly. So So
2: they don't really start until third grade. So like if we can get those first, what, kindergarten, first, second, third. So if you can get three and a half years of like, who are you? Who am I? Question the world. Don't be okay with... Mediocrity or just being almost like if you can instill that in them while they're five, six, seven, eight years old, yeah. then by the time they get to the standardized tests, they'll be like, eh, yeah, whatever. That's just a part of who I am. That's one box I can fill, but I've got all these other boxes that all of my other teachers have helped me
0: find. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I love that.
0: Thinking philosophically is something every human does. We all wonder and we all want to know many of man's unknown questions. However, how we think about these things largely depends on our own identity and how we shape our line of thinking. We hope you enjoyed our talk with Veronica Muller today. To read her abstract published article, visit our website directly. If you're interested in talking with us, send us an email at dosageofrepartee at gmail.com or reach out to us on our website at www.sub-stances.com or using our Facebook and Instagram. Don't worry, it's not a Finsta.